That Chinese balloon floated over the American heartland for days before it was shot down. But are concerns about it just so much hot air? And a year after Putin's invasion, does Ukraine deserve a blank check from the U.S.? And is there an end game? In other news, will Section 230 survive the Supreme Court? And what's wrong with this effort to rewrite and sanitize Roald Dahl's children's books? We will discuss these issues and more in today's episode of Independent Outlook. Hello, everyone. I'm Graham Walker coming to you today from the Independent Institute in Oakland, California, right across the bay from San Francisco, where we try to bring you an independent take on the issues of the day, while keeping an eye in particular on the fate of liberty. As always, I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, Dr. Williamson Evers. Hello, Bill. Hello, Graham. Great to see you. Bill Evers is the director of the Independent Institute Center on Educational Excellence, and it's a pleasure to have him. But today we are also joined by our featured expert and colleague, Dr. Ivan Eland. Ivan is the director of our Center on Peace and Liberty, headquartered back in Washington, D.C. Hello, Ivan. Hi. Hi, Graham. Hi, Bill. Great to see you. And let me just draw everybody's attention to the fact that Ivan Eland is the author of several important books through Independent Institute, Recarving Rushmore, Rates the President, Great Read. More recently, uh, and especially relevant to today's issues, War and the Rogue Presidency, uh, which is Ivan's take on congressional power and presidential power uh, in light of war making. So uh, by all means, take a look at Ivan Elon's book. So gentlemen, let's talk about this crazy balloon. Uh, it was over the U.S. for, what, about 10 days, floating over, apparently, some of the most sensitive uh, ICBM sites in Montana, and then eventually President Biden ordered that it be shot down in the waters off of South Carolina. Um, it seems like a pretty big deal, or some people say it isn't. Ivan, what do you think about the balloon? Well, I think it is uh, overblown, as we say. Um, and <laughs> ha -ha. and the, the, re <laughs> the reason I say that is because, you know, the Chinese are, are uh, have all sorts of ways of collecting intelligence, including overhead satellites, et cetera. And I'm not minimizing that the, it was an intelligence balloon. I think that they're right about that, mm -hmm. just by the way the array of uh, um, that was under it looks like a, an intelligence balloon. But I, I suppose they're going to give us more information. But the real issue to me is why did, why did they wait to shoot it down before it got here? Now, there could be a legitimate reason. Sometimes the intelligence community leaves stuff go when they do a cost-benefit analysis, and they say, well, they're not going to get that much, and let's see what they're taking, and let's monitor the telemetry on the balloon as it goes by. Well, that could have been a possibility, but it seems like uh, they detected it way before uh, it appeared over Montana when it was up by Alaska. And then it floated on its way down. And, of course, one question is, did it float that way because the natural air currents would take it right over the ICBM silos? Or was it piloted to go in that direction? Well, it is. It is. It has some maneuverability. Uh, that's why they think it was intentional. And, it, and you're right. It's going over. And Montana has a lot of, uh, strangely, you wouldn't think in cow pastures, but uh, there are military facilities, uh, very important ones, uh, ICBM means Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, and although ICBMs have been vulnerable for long, many decades now, they're still a tr uh, part of the U.S. triad, which combines submarine launch, which is our fail-safe uh, deterrent, with a bomber, and then the ICBM 
that's the strategic nuclear triad. So it, it is it is uh, an important target. But I think I think what the, the current theory is they were trying to spy on Guam and and uh, Hawaii, and it kind of got off course a bit and went up to Alaska and then came down. But uh, it's somewhat maneuverable, so well, one doesn't know if that's completely correct either. Uh, there could be disinformation on the part of our intelligence agencies for reasons that they have for doing that as well. So it's hard to say exactly what the story is. So, Ivan, what do you now think of speculation? Ivan, what do you think of speculation that there might be divisions within China? Just as, I mean, obviously they're more authoritarian, more, and they're quite dictatorial, but there can be divisions there. It could be that somebody in the military didn't like Blinken's attempt to make, and, and the foreign minister of China's attempt to make uh, some kind of detente or to reduce tensions and sent this up, or didn't just didn't put a self-destruct uh, uh, thing into effect. Well, there could I think there could be divisions, but there also could be just incompetence on the part of military because she, the leader of China, was actually on a charm offense of trying to better relations with the U.S. and of course that mm. kind of came tumbling down with the balloon, I think, because, uh, you know, it, it's sort of mock outrage because, frankly, all countries spy on all other countries and they're very uh, hardcore about doing it. People want to know what's going on in the world uh, and what th if there's a threat to them. And, of course, China, like I said, spies uh, many different types of espionage, electronic intelligence, signals intelligence, balloons, satellites, and we have all that stuff, too. So... Uh, you know, it's kind of mock horror when something like this happens, just as it was a mock horror in uh, 1959 when U-2 uh, Gary Powers was shot down on the part of uh, Soviet Union. And so everybody knows everybody spies, but then they're always horrified when it's exposed. So I have another question. Uh, do you think visibility over the United States, you know, it was low enough that it loomed and regular people could see it figured in the political salience of this. And what do you think of people who might suggest that Republicans came to power in the House saying they were going to cut budgets <clears throat> and that no budget was sacred and possibly some people that wanted to make sure their programs, military industrial complex type programs, were spared or maybe boosted uh, might have elevated this story. What do you think of these possible questions? Well, of course, that's always a possibility because uh, what they want to reinforce, uh, there's always a reason for, for this coming out. I think in this case, it, you're right, it was, it was the fact that, that these balloons could be seen and everybody is, of course, going, well, what is that? And where did it come from? And of course, then people start, reporters start asking questions and then they have to do something. So it could be that the U.S. military <clears throat> really didn't want to do too much about this at all. And then the people in Montana saw it and people started asking questions. And I mean, that's a very plausible alternative that the, they were just going to let it go. Uh, um, 
because we had balloons, Chinese balloons, the past four or five years have been going uh, over the U.S. in one part or another. So I'm not sure that the intelligence community was really taking it all that seriously. Uh, as far as the military-industrial complex, I, I don't think they really need m much of an additional help because they're running at full speed to try to keep it all the, keep up with all the ammunition orders in Ukraine. And the, the threat really seems severe now, but probably shouldn't be. And I guess we'll probably get into that in a minute. But uh, the, the threat that they're hyping is the threat of, of Ukraine and what it means for Taiwan and China and right. in the East Asia. Regarding the balloon, though, it's been a while since they retrieved a lot of it from the Atlantic Ocean. If uh, the U.S. Uh, officials had had learned that, in fact, it, it did contain, you know, serious spy equipment, wouldn't they have made that known so as to better justify shooting it down? Well, I'm not. They might. Uh, they may not want to release pictures of the actual uh, device, but for for technical reasons, but. I mean, you would think they would would put something out. I'm still waiting to see. You know, they have to. It is somewhat of a time-consuming process because you have to pick it off the ocean floor, transport, and then mm -hmm. reassemble it on right. the on the shore. So I think we have to give them a little bit of time. But I mean, it could be that the Chinese are right and that it wasn't an intelligence. That would be so would, embarrassing. Yes, I I would <laughs> I would kind of doubt that just by the way the the pictures that were taken from the fighter jets uh, on the right. the array that was under the balloon. But we'll we'll see um, what happens. I think we have to give them at least a couple more weeks. But, but oh, then okay. I think All right. I think I think your point is good. I think reporters really should keep on that and go. Hey, what you know? Whatever happened to the proof that there was this was an intelligence balloon? So if if they never give information about what they really found in the remains, uh, would that mean it was likely not a spy craft, or what would that mean? Well, Silence could, is hard to interpret. Yes, it could mean that, or it could mean <clears throat> that they, that they just don't want to, that it might give away something that they don't want to give away. That's giving right. them the benefit yeah. of the doubt, of course. Yeah. But, right. you know, China insists that this was not a spy balloon. But, of course, that Eisenhower lied when the U-2 got shot down in 1959. Mm -hmm. And then they produced the pilot. They said, uh, you right. know, oh, it's just a weather plane and they got off course or something. And they go, well, we get, you know, the, and Khrushchev trapped Ike into, mm -hmm. he said, well, you know, we got this military pilot here and he was driving a spy <laughs> Gary plane. Powers, so, I, yeah. I am yeah. old enough to remember this. Yeah. Well, just barely. I can remember. And I, I, Eisenhower is thoroughly <laughs> embarrassed by the whole thing. Oh yeah. Um, so, but so these things happen. Like I said, have happened before. And uh, you know, if you remember, the uh, Israelis knocked out one of our intelligence ships. Liberty. And pretended yes, and pretended that it, would, that it was an accident, but. <laughs> You know, of course, and then we didn't admit really, that it, really, it was really an intelligence ship. It was just, but it was just sitting off the coast during the uh, Israeli coast during a Middle East war. So, you know, this this stuff happens every once in a while that that's embarrassing to everyone. So let's turn our attention over to Ukraine and Russia. Uh, it was pretty stunning to see our president suddenly show up in Kiev uh, side by side with Volodymyr Zelensky. And uh, especially, it was the more or less the one-year anniversary of the Russian 
invasion of Ukraine. So there's uh, President uh, Joe Biden uh, telling uh, them that the U.S. and its allies will never waver uh, and, in its support for Ukraine. And of course, he's saying that in Kiev, uh, right at the same time when President Zelensky has been making clear his position is that they want to recapture all territories and make sure that Russia is completely humiliated. Uh, this struck me as a kind of uh, dramatic gesture on Joe Biden's part. Was it warranted? Was it risky? What do you think, Ivan? Well, I mean, from a standpoint, if you want to back Ukraine to the fullest all the time, it was a masterstroke politically. But whether that's the right policy is another matter. I, I say we should turn this war over to the people that it affects the most, our rich European allies, over time in the middle, in the midterm. In the long term, I'm proposing a solution because I think most wars uh, are not like World War II where one side vanquishes the other. There's usually a settlement. And mm -hmm. I, I would like to go back in history a little bit, which is a similar war. In 1940, the Soviets and the Finns had a war and mm -hmm. little Finland really gave the mighty Soviet Union a bloody nose. And mm -hmm. they, these guys were on skis and everything else and the Russians didn't know what to do. Well, at the, but at the end of the conflict, uh, even though it's always been perceived that Finland won, and, and I think the, in that sense, the Ukrainians have already won since they're still standing, right, over right. when a monster is attacking you. It's the same thing, same situation. But even on that one, the Finns had to negotiate a settlement. And I think there will have to be a negotiated settlement. And I'm not sure that Ukraine is going to get back all its territory unless the Russian military just collapses. Now, the so, settlement so the between interesting... Finland and Russia, well, with, with Finland and Russia, the, the Finns had to agree to be neutralized, didn't they? Yes, yes, they were. It was called they, Finlandization. Uh, but, but they, they also they lost they some really, territory in Karelia. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. And they, and they also, their foreign policy, they couldn't allied with the West. They, could, they had their economy. They could have a free market economy. They could have a mm -hmm. free society. But their, their foreign policy had to be, you know, uh, neutralized or Finlandized, as it was said during the mm -hmm. Cold War. But Finland really prospered under that, uh, oh, under yeah. that system. And I think Ukraine, if they did it right, they could do that same thing if they just did, stayed out of NATO and we just remained neutral. But now they don't want to do that because they're they're going to be paranoid about Russia, and with some justification, Russia, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, uh, doing this again. But I think you have to have a stable situation so it doesn't. So my my solution in the long term, and I, nobody's ready for this yet, but I'm putting I'm putting it out there, is I think. We should have legitimate referenda in these areas, and which we didn't have before the Russians came in. You can't have a referendum when you have troops on the ground, like in Crimea and the Donbass, and you know everyone's intimidated. You have to have an international uh, group in there monitoring. You have to have the troops pull back and everything, and let these areas decide. They're Russian-speaking areas, and there's also just ethnic Russians in some of these areas. And, and about 40% in Crimea. Um, um, and so, you know, we, you really should have some sort of a vote to where these, these people want to live. And it's a more stable long-term situation. And neither country will probably be happy with the outcome, but that's what compromise is anyway. So I think that maybe in the long term, that's the way to go, self-determination. Uh, there is a piece that you uh, wrote uh, for MSN News 
called U.S. should turn Ukraine war over to its European allies. We've reposted it to our website, independent.org. Very much worth a visit to our website, independent.org, to see Ivan's piece on this specific topic. And he also has a piece on his uh, peace proposal of self-determination and referendums. It's yeah, and I think that one is sort of a medium solution and the other one's a longer-term solution. But I think, you know, <clears throat> we have to put this in perspective. Russia has the GDP the size of Italy uh, or Texas, right? And and I think Texas actually has more GDP than Russia. So the, this country, uh, in European, the European Union combined has more of a higher GDP than the United States. So these are all very uh, wealthy countries and they can do more to get more equipment there. And some of the some of these uh, systems that the U.S. is being asked, uh, the, the Ukrainians <clears throat> are really going to have trouble operating, like the M1 tank. They can operate the Leopards and the, uh, you know, the Challenger and the Chieftains a lot better than they can um, uh, because they're a slightly lower technology than they can the M1. And the, and the fuel consumption rate on the M1, because it's so heavy, is you know, gallons per mile uh, rather than uh, miles per gallon. <laughs> that's a way of putting so, it. That's, that's, so I, that's literally true. I'm not being facetious. You need tremendous logistical capabilities to have that tank on the, in the field. Ivan, yeah. I noticed two other things I wondered if you comment on. One was uh, Britain offering training to Ukrainians on uh, Western fighter jets. And the second is uh, some of these year of war reviews have said that Ukraine's economy is crippled and in terrible trouble and on life support from Western aid, where while its military are pretty, have good morale, have uh, excellent training, and the reverse is true for Russia, that Russia's morale is terrible that uh, they don't have very well-trained troops. They lost a lot of equipment. They lost a lot of their elite troops. But their economy is surviving a lot better than people who expected the sanctions to cripple their economy. So I don't know. So the one, one is the question of training pilots. I mean, this is a little bit like putting the revolver on the wall at the beginning of a play. You know, if you start training the pilots, then aren't you saying I'm going to give you the planes to fly or Poland's going to give you the planes to fly or something like that? And then well, what, do you, what do you think about the, the economies and, and troops? Yeah, I think uh, I'll start with the economies. I looked at the figures and uh, really the government, it's really the <clears throat> oil revenues going into the Russian government. They say that I was, Yellen was just on TV. Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury, was just on TV before I, we came. We started recording this uh, 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 piece, and she said, "Well, we've we've cut uh, oil uh, exports of Russia by 50 percent, but that's doesn't. And even if that's true, it's not all all the, all those revenues don't go to the government. So, so if you say that." Uh, well, you know, forty uh, percent of the of the uh, exports are oil, and twenty three. We've inter interdicted twenty three percent. Then you get only nine percent of the uh, Russian government revenues being reduced. So I, 
I kind of agree with that. I mean, I think there are projections for their economic growth that is a slight growth. Uh, so they're not, their economy is not falling apart. Uh, Ukraine's economy would be falling apart since they're hitting, you know, civilian infrastructure and uh, in the, particularly in the eastern part, it's a shambles, basically. Uh, the western uh, areas are much more uh, um, untrammeled, you might say. So I think that's the economy, that's a good uh, rendition of the economy. The sanctions, uh, uh, I did my PhD on the effects of economic sanctions, and they always they always overstate what's going to happen because you've got Turkey, China, and and um, the stand countries, even Israel, you know, not being on the Ukrainian side. So I think that, you know, they're, they're, um, uh, there's a lot of help the Russians are getting. And also, you know, they have something that people really want to buy, and that's they're discounting their oil. So that's, that helps too. Uh, you know, the oil supplies, because it's a world market, when you put sanctions on a country, the supplies just shift around. It's like, uh, you know, musical chairs, only everybody's got a chair, right? So, uh, and and you, certainly I think the Russian military is in trouble and they have plenty of people of military age that they can recruit. The problem is their training pipeline is, you know, is going to be constricted. They can only train so many people and then they're just giving them basic training and throwing them in human waves to identify, get this, identify where the Ukrainian artillery is so then they can use their own artillery to hit the Ukrainian artillery. I mean, that's just crazy. And wow. when you, uh, in modern warfare, the smaller force with high technology and high morale can beat, they can just keep slaughtering Russians. And eventually that's probably gonna hurt Putin. It may take a while, but uh, I think you know, Russia has as big a problem of staying the course as Ukraine does with Western aid. So, uh, and the other question was, are they going to give them fighter jets? I would predict they probably will. The British, there's a little bit of inter-alliance um, uh, politics there because I think the British are pressuring Biden through this training uh, program to go ahead and give them uh, Western and, aircraft. And Poland, of course, offered to do it early in the war. And Poland is probably the most bellicose of the anti-Putin countries, uh, thinking back to 1921. I mean, they, you know, and, and a, in a yeah. sense, when we're talking about the problems of peacemaking on the part of Ukraine, Ukraine is developing the mentality of Poland in the interwar years uh, of, you know, seeing Russia as intractably hostile and dangerous and also developing something of the mentality of Israel where every uh, person of military aid has a gun in their house and has to go on periodic training. I mean, I, I think Leon Hadar had a quite excellent piece about how Ukrainian politicians are kind of preparing the society in Ukraine, that that has to be the future if they uh, survive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's really hard to, it's really hard to maintain a democracy when that happens, when you have that much military Garrison mobilization. state problem. Const right. Yes, a constant, you know, it's not, it's not like the U.S. used to do in the old days where we 
didn't have a military at all hardly and then we mobilized if we needed a war and then we went back to not having a military that's you know when you have a military society and you you're militarized all the time like we were in the cold war like israel is now uh it's democracy has a tough time maintaining itself and i think that's what one of the things that people uh don't focus on it's very important and the second thing i would say is you know when you have allies like poland poland is going to be very aggressive because they want Ukraine to be the front line state, <laughs> not them, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, that's why Poland wanted uh, the Baltics in. They were, they were bigger, big on the Baltics because the Baltics are, far, you know, right on the Russian border. So, um, so, so, but you do with alliances that one of the problems that nobody ever focuses on is your allies can get, when they have big, big, uh, the big brother behind them protecting them, they get kind of sassy with the, you know, big countries like, and so I think Poland and, and if Ukraine were in, uh, either got some sort of a security agreement or got into NATO, you would see you would see that you'd have that problem. And I think the British are maybe getting a little ahead of themselves too. They want to show that they're the most anti-Russian of the uh, of the European countries. So um, and of course yeah, there's pressure. and of course there's domestic politics in Poland and in Britain that are mm -hmm, figuring mm -hmm. into this. As right, well as right, well as right. we of course see in the United States, uh -huh. so it the also Hyven. seemed to me that poll data shows some drop off, not a lot, of support in the American population for continuing at this rate of aid, and it's the people who are expert have dissected opinion polling in Russia and have found also a modest drop off of public support. Uh, the, of course, public expression of this is totally repressed right now uh, 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 that we haven't seen since the communist period in terms of uh, silencing critics. Uh, but there is polling that's going on, and you can pick apart the questions. Well, I think when you have a conscription milita conscripted military like we had in Vietnam, look at the, look at the difference between we had a 20-year war in Afghanistan, 11-year war in Iraq, which is really still going on. It's in two segments, uh, and there were hardly any protests. And initially there were with, with George W. Bush when he went into Iraq, but it wasn't like the Vietnam War where you had continuous protests, and that eventually helped, uh, you know, uh, end the war there. But the, you, Russia has a conscripted military, and if they take casualties, I mean, they're taking casualties. They've already lost what we, what we did in Vietnam, probably. Uh, in the course of a year, uh, what we did in uh, the United States did in you know an eight-year period or whatever, um, so or even longer, and so eventually Putin is going to feel some of that because people get really mad <clears throat> when their uh, sons are drafted uh, and they get killed and they're being used in cannon fodder. And of course, some of this leaks back to the public, uh, even though Putin is trying to keep his levers on all the all the, uh, uh, you know, media and that sort of thing, clamp down media coverage. So when you have, uh, they're losing just, uh, you know, great amounts of people, that's eventually, I think, going to affect uh, Putin. It's going to take a while because he's a dictator, but it, it could happen. I also... I, I wanted to just... I also had one last point on Russia, and that is there were some small classical liberal political groups and figures, news media figures, cultural figures, 
the uh, they're just repressed or they've fled to the West. Uh, it's it's a, a very, I mean, in, in a sense it means even more so than in the past that if Putin stepped down or were forced out, the people that would come in would be more ultra-nationalistic than he. Well, that's a possibility, yes. But it's also a possibility that they might, the, the people may be so ticked off that they, you know, pull out of the war like they did in World War One. Right. So, uh, and, you know, we're telling that World War One was such a meat grinder. They were right. losing uh, even more uh, troops than now. And sometimes pop, public opinion, I'm not saying in the long term Russia's going to have a democracy, but in the short term, you might see them pull back their forces and that sort of thing like they did in um uh, World War One, of course. World War One also gave us the Bolsheviks in the longer term there. So mm-hmm. the pull, I was the very pull, struck the by the pullback. Your... Did not come under the czars. It did not come under the provisional government, which had uh, very right. moderate the, libertarians yeah. in it, and it did not even come back in the early years of the Bolsheviks, where they had uh, the Bolsheviks had campaigned on revolutionary defeatism when they weren't in power. But once they were in power, they started to have a, what we later came to be called the Trotskyist position, which was, you know, keep fighting and extend into the capitalist area. But they got so badly defeated that they sued for peace at Brest-Lovask. So, what, what you're talking about in some ways is the effect of this war on Russia's own political culture. Um, it's pretty pretty fascinating question because yeah, well, I don't think I think Bill's right. I don't think in the long term it's not it's not going to help. But wars never help political cultures. They tend to centralize power, no matter right, what right. kind of a political That's system right. you have. Right. The, the, what I'm talking about is if you want the Russians to disengage and go back home, they they possibly could do that. Uh, you could also have some sort of a uh, uh, yeah revolution or civil war in Russia. That's, you know, now we're going way afield in prediction because right. it's very hard to predict. But but nonetheless, I don't I don't think the average Russian is going to be helped by this war as far as liberty goes. Uh, you might see a, uh, a new regime saying, OK, you know, this is disaster and Putin, we're criticizing him for doing this. So we're <clears> not going to you know, we're, we're smart enough to pull out. But, you know, they could kind uh, of like again, De Gaulle get... leaving Algeria or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they, but and they, if they, they could also double down and say, well, you know, Putin was just incompetent, and we need to, the Hawks could t- could take over, and they then yeah. yeah. But I think there's a limit to the what the Russians can do here. I just, this offensive that they've got going doesn't seem to be awesome <laughs> or anything like that. You know, they seem to be inching forward, and if that's all they can do, they've lost half their main battle tanks. Uh, uh, their modern main battle tanks. So they've got plenty of old ones sitting in the, you know, in the storehouses that they can bring out. But those are just going to probably get incinerated, um, you know. The, and they've got uh, uh, problems with air defense, problems with uh, their aircraft. Uh, you name it. Uh, they've got, and of course, their disaster in logistics and command is is really bad. Ivan, I am really struck by your analogy with with Finland. Um, that's pretty fascinating because, in some ways, couldn't couldn't that com- comparison cut both ways? So obviously, the first implication of your analogy is that 
the Finns found a way to give up a little territory in return for neutralization. They kept their in internal freedom, uh, and they were you know, no longer such a threat to the Soviet Union, and everything worked out well. However, you fast forward the Finland situation, allowing the Finns uh, some peace and a great deal of internal liberty and the development of free market and so forth. Uh, they, the Finns were you know, even more westernized after many decades than they were at the start. Uh, couldn't it be from the Russian perspective that the Finland, the Finland solution turned out to be worrisome because the Finns developed such a taste for Western liberty that they now want to join NATO? Right, so, in the long term, yes. Yeah, so I maybe think that's true. They could draw, the Russians could draw the, the wrong conclusion from the Finland example by saying, well, well yeah. They could, yeah, <laughs> they could. But my, my use of the Finland, uh, the Finland example was to show that even if you win the war, and I think the Ukraine won the war, uh, life is, is, uh, depends on expectations for mm -hmm. people, for organizations, for countries. And the expectation was that it was going to be a three, day uh, jaunt into Kiev by the Russians. And of course, uh, here we are a year later. And uh, so politically, Russia lost the war a long time ago. So it's not going to be necessarily a uh, win for the Russians. Everyone says, well, if, they, if the Ukraine doesn't get back all its territory, it, it, the Russians will have gained something and they'll be more likely to be aggressive in the future. And I say, well, that's not necessarily true because everybody knows the Ukrainians did better than expected and actually <clears> won <throat> the war. So they have a freedom to negotiate. Some of these territories are, you know, the war has polarized uh, these places in the east and in the southeast. And a lot of these people may be more pro-Ukrainian than they were before, but there's still some Russians and Russian speakers in these areas that would be hard to govern after this because they're more polarized on the other side. So maybe it would be better for Ukraine in the long term for stability to have these referendums and see what happens, mm -hmm. you know, see see where, where people want to go. Now, of course, there's also strategic military issues and Crimea is the crown jewel. It's strategic because that's where the you know, Russia in its history has had a problem with warm water ports. And really the only one they have is uh, Sevastopol on the Crimean Peninsula, but that that also kind of guards the 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 only coastline that Ukraine has in Odessa and you know other smaller ports there. So uh, the Ukrainians don't want this is a sticking point. This will be a sticking point in any negotiation because mm -hmm. the Ukrainians don't want the Russians' navy perched right on their ports because of course they could you know stop uh, ship traffic. And the Russians are desperate to get this, to keep this uh, um, warm water port because they don't have another one like Vladivostok or the Kola Peninsula are all, all icebound a lot. So, so uh, the Russians have a strategic interest in that. So, you know, you hey, either have to demilitarize the peninsula in any settlement, or you'd you'd have to, you know, uh, have uh, share the port, which I I don't know if that would work since the two sides hate each other so much. What you if know? you what if you did to Sevastopol what was done in Cuba? Doesn't the U.S. have it, a base on the Cuban mainland, uh, a naval base? Well, that was the Guantanamo. case. Well, they, that was the case before the takeover by Russia of Crimea. The Ukrainians had given Russia uh, special rights in Sevastopol. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes, but. 
So they could, they could, but of course the Russians. I don't think that's accept that would be acceptable now because the the Ukrainians would say, listen, they're trying to blockade us now. They could do that in the future very easily. They have their thumb on our all our exports and imports. So uh, that's going to be unacceptable. For that arrangement is now unacceptable to the Ukrainians, I would think. In a historical perspective, to me, it seems almost inconceivable that Moscow would forever relinquish control over Sevastopol. Am I right or wrong right. on that? No, because historically, uh, the Russians have always uh, uh, been frustrated that they didn't have more warm water ports. That's, and that's the one the they had. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's the one they have. And uh, that, that's, why, that's the principal reason why Putin took that in uh, 2014. Uh, Ivan, just going to a much bigger perspective still, uh, should should it make a difference to especially to our European allies that the animating ideas behind Putin's aggression seem to be Russian nationalism as opposed to the old animating ideas of the Soviet Union, which was socialist internationalism? There was, in principle, no limit to the expansion of the Soviet socialist empire. But doesn't there seem to be a difference with Russian nationalism? Isn't it more limited in its ideological aims? Well, I think uh, Putin would like to restore the Soviet Union. He even said that, but not as a socialist. Uh, it's more of a, a fascist type of uh, governance, but it's more nationalist. That's right. But his idea is Eurasianism, which is ah. Belarus, Ukraine, you know, the heart <clears> of the <throat> old Russia. Of course, he he starts Russia, you know, in the 800s when uh, the leader there of uh, Vladimir was was uh, in no Kiev. coincidence that yes and he he converted to Christianity then but the problem is that the Swede the Swedish Vikings really founded uh Kiev. the Rus the Rus Rus is a uh, means those who row and the 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 ah. Rus came down and they the Vikings the Swedes had were the ruling class over the people who lived in Kiev before so he kind of leaves that out of the you know, I, I also history, I would also mention to you, Graham, that a major aspect <clears throat> of Russian nationalism was and, until the Bolsheviks took over was the Straits. In other words, taking over mm -hmm. the area around the Dardanelles and uh, Istanbul and so forth, and even the classical liberals idiotically. Instead of thinking they should get some kind of peace and attend to the land problems and, you know, restore the economy in Russia during, at the closing part of World War I, which they didn't know was closing. But anyway, they thought the peasants cared about the straits, which was crazy. One of the biggest mistakes in the whole history of classical liberalism. Well, and also, if you have this Sevastopol port, you still have right. to go through exactly. the straits. So that's why Turkey and Russia have been in each other's throats. They're exactly. not so much now, actually, but that's why the, the potential is, very, is very serious. Yes, because they can they can have that port, but if they can't get through the straits out into the Mediterranean, then they're bottled up in the Black Sea, which of course is why Turkey is so they put up with Turkey and NATO, Turkey's antics, because they're strategically located on those straits. I'm going to change the subject in a minute, but one last little thing on this. Ivan, what do you think about uh, China's latest statement in which they seem to 
pose themselves as a potential neutral mediator for calling for peace talks? Well, I, you know, I think China, uh, they haven't gone all in to help Russia. Now, Blinken said that they're picking up intelligence that they might give them weapons. But, you know, I, that'd be backing a loser. I'm not sure that's that's China's best thing. I think it would be better if China played the the mediator. Uh, they're clearly, although Yellen said that they're, you know, they've closed off all this help that the, the Chinese and everybody else are giving. Then that, then that flashes on the screen. All these countries are helping Russia evade mm -hmm. the sanctions. So, but now they're worried about that's non-lethal stuff uh, or stuff dual-use stuff. But, but they're now worried about China giving actual weapons to uh, the Russians. But I think the Chinese would probably be better, uh, smarter not to throw, double down on a lo losing cause. They could play to, Teddy um, Roosevelt in wrapping up the right. Russo-Japanese War. He got a Nobel Peace Prize right. for it. Yeah. So yeah, and they would pull uh -huh. a, a reverse. They would pull a reverse Nixon as you know, right. inserting mm. them themselves into between the two. And they would look uh, good to the U.S. Know. public. And they would too. Uh -huh. Yeah. Not that they deserve yes. to necessarily, but they probably would. Okay. Changing the subject. Changing the subject. If you don't mind, this has been totally. Fascinating. I, I, I want to throw in one last thing. Okay. Uh, okay. Novotny. <laughs> Hey, who was a leading opposition figure in Russia and who was a nationalist, but not a extremely crazy one, uh, but still quite nationalistic. He is not a classical liberal. He is certainly also not a socialist. But he, and he used to favor Russian retention of Crimea. And he has issued a, a national platform in the last few days saying no. We should go back to our previous international borders. This is actually wow. a very important step in terms of the underground dialogue within Russia. Agree is he going to suddenly fall out of a window? Yeah, they have him Having in jail, so he well, doesn't have to fall out of a window. I think he's <laughs> too prominent now to get poisoned like everybody else. But, but uh, you know, yes, that's. I think that's true. Whether whether that will, uh, you know. Um, Convince the powers that be and the mil Russian military and intelligence services that Crimea is no longer strategic is another question. But yes, mm -hmm. I think that's a useful. What he's doing is he's trying to drive a wedge mm -hmm. in there and saying, "Listen, I'm more I'm a more reasonable nationalist than Putin is. So why don't you help me get back into power or get get into power?" I think mm -hmm. there's one further thing we have to say something about, and that is nuclear weapons control. Uh, arms control treaties. Do we, are, I mean, many people, obviously there are people who have like a fetish about these treaties. Many people think the most important thing is leaders in the different sides who see their interests clearly and see a pattern of restraint that can stop things from boiling over and that the treaties are not that important. But symbols are important in politics. So I would be interested in Ivan's thinking on this. Me too. Well, the strategic, the, the, I was glad to see that Biden and Putin at the beginning of the Biden administration really uh, renewed this treaty for another, what it was, five years. Uh, because, you know, if you stop to think about it in U.S. history, we've had very few 
ex existential threats. Maybe the British between the revolution and 1812 <laughs> of coming back and the Soviet nuclear uh, and now the Russian nuclear uh, threat. And, that, and if China builds, builds, it up, builds their forces up, there, there could be a threat. So uh, we really need to keep our eye on the nuclear thing that's kind of gone into abeyance in the public mind, but the, the, these nuclear weapons are still out there. Now, the major pro problem with Putin, what Putin is trying to do there, I think, is say, well, I'm going to suspend this treaty, and if you want it back, you're going to have to give me uh, something in the negotiations in this, uh, this war at the end of the war. And I don't think they're going to buy that because I think uh, Russia is a poor, poor country compared to China and the U.S., and if there's no any sort of arms control, the Russians are going to lose lose out. So I'm not sure the United States is going to take that. And China doesn't want any strategic limits because they want to build build up. But the, these weapons are the only existential threat that we've faced in the modern world, uh, and we do have to keep a, an eye on that. The main, the main. I'll be quick here. Uh, the main. I think Putin is suspending it. He's not ending and it. And it's inspections and, uh, it, that are what are ceasing. Yes, that's that's the that's the key thing. And there's going to be no inspection. That's because you know uh, Carter, Jimmy Carter. I guess we're going to talk about him later. But he got the Salt II Treaty. It was never ratified, but Reagan and the Soviets uh, never violated right. it, right? Or they they agreed to the limits. So that could happen. Uh, Putin made it clear that he's not going to build any more weapons because, you know, she doesn't have the money, especially running this this war. So arms <clears> control <throat> is is good for him, good for him, actually. <clears throat> but he's trying to leverage it anyway. But, but it's the main is the inspections that are not going to be done. I don't think there's going to be a breakout on either side of building more warheads. Thank you. That's super uh, insightful, Ivan. I'm going to turn the page uh, back to the U.S. domestic stuff. Uh, before the Supreme Court, uh, the two sides argued about these cases affecting Section 230 of the Communications Act. I was especially intrigued by this one case, which uh, concerns the late uh, Nohemi Gonzalez, who was shot in Paris in 2015, apparently by ISIS operatives. And uh, his estate is suing Google because Google, through YouTube, was not only hosting uh, ISIS-type, ISIS-related materials, but also using its algorithm to promote and recommend it to other viewers of the material. And so their claim is being made against Google that they, they weren't acting just like a passive platform. Their algorithms were actually promoting this material, and therefore they should be liable for damages in the death of this Mr. Gonzalez. Um, Bill, I know you have some thoughts on this. I'm kind of struck by the relative um, seriousness of the case against Google. Well, it certainly looks bad for Google. I, I think the problem is millions of people are posting all the time, and mm -hmm. these platforms cannot, uh, they cannot monitor them all. And they, they try to use certain algorithmic things that pick up words or patterns or whatever. And, and they, the, the, the way you get something like a, a potential terrorist ending up in the lap of terrorists is they, the algorithm follows through on what you've liked or what you've read or what you've reposted. 
And so if you start, you know, this would be true. Let's say you like the Independent Institute. Well, then you'd also get Cato and uh, Heartland and whatever. You'd get other like things, somewhat like. We, we differentiate a bit too. But the point is, you, you, the algorithm doesn't know you and it just it knows the similar things. And so it's very hard for the platform owners to somehow do this. And if you make them liable, you're going to have business disputes, you're going to have personal jealousy rivalries, you're going to have ex-husbands and ex-wives, you're going to just They'll be consumed and they will close down or they will, you know, be about kittens. And I, I mean, <laughs> until, yeah, uh, anyway, but, but Bill, the I, thing, I, made, the I think I this, made my point. And this is what the, the court thing, said. The court, the people that talked among the Supreme Court justices, they said, this is a very complicated thing. It's potentially overwhelming. It's not really our job to, to give technological advice or diktats. If Congress wants to kill itself trying to do this, and by the way, they've, you know, many senators and representatives have said, oh, yes, terrible. You know, the the liberals say, oh, too many conservative conspiracy theories are affecting the public. And the conservatives say, well, we're being downgraded by the algorithms. They're probably both right. Uh, the point is, it's not easy to write a statute that makes people happy or makes all but you know three percent happy or something like that and so the the court looks like they're going to punt on this but what but they, it, well where would they have to would congress really have to make a detailed statute if they just remove the liability uh, exemption then, from then these all these that... things that I just had in my quote unquote parade of horribles, if I may quote Oliver Wendell Holmes here, would happen. In other words, all business disputes would be sued over this. All uh, it it would be an unending catastrophe for all the platform owners. They could not they could not possibly do the monitoring. And they could not possibly handle the legal costs. But but the issue that's intriguingly different about the Gonzalez case is that what's what's being contended here is not that they should be responsible for all the content posted to their platform, but rather that they should be responsible for the effects of their promotion of content. But it's the same thing that I just explained. <clears throat> if I may, I'm not trying to be. Look, no, keep going. if you like independent institute stuff or you like Ivan Elon you'll get William Ruger you'll get uh, Leon Hadar you'll get Alan Donaldson you'll get whoever you'll get the people from the Quincy Institute you'll get you see so their their algorithm is picking up what you like and right. hyperbolically following through now, but the complaint is, oh, they went too far, but the computer doesn't know. The computer is just following through. But does the algorithmic activity have to proceed under the same exemption of, of the simple How would platform? you write the law? Please do not follow through on what anybody likes. <laughs> well, I mean... No, they wouldn't have to. I mean, if they get sued, 
because their algorithms are radicalizing people. Then maybe they could, they could the very the, the very beginning of all this stuff. They didn't have algorithms. Everything just right. neutrally right. came yeah, out they could there. Do that. They could do that but, too. But yeah, that's not that actually what the customer wants. The customer wants right. <clears throat> things that are similar to what they've looked if they've if if they've looked at men's clothing stuff in the past they want more right. men's clothing so it's but it's not just the customers it's, it's also the, the advertisers, advertisers too the I, I agree and that's what funds it, it. but yeah. you know i i understand the dissatisfaction i i think you're if you try to pass a law or a regulation it would be a worse internet certainly from our intellectual standpoint. Look at, just look at, the, the, we have a great example right now. The U.S. State Department, through its, its Institute for Democracy, is funding an international disinformation clearinghouse. Who is on this? Ugh, ugh. No, no, Reason <laughs> Magazine is one that they're trying to drive all advertisers away from. Right. Okay. Uh, Charlie Kirk, uh, you know, Epic Times, on and on. Now, we're not necessarily in agreement with all these people 100% of the time. But this is getting pretty close to the Independent Institute. Certainly, the Reason Magazine is getting pretty close to the Independent Institute's standpoint. I, I, this is the kind of monitoring and that would go on once you try to control this. That sounds bad. I think I, 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 I can't understand how anybody. That, so, so the Josh Hawleys of this world think, well, I'm going to be in charge. Why do they <laughs> think they're going to be in charge? And same with some sort of socialist on the left. Oh, we'll be in charge. No, it's going to be there were, the usual managerial state type people that are going to be in charge, and it will be horrible. Uh, the, the other case that was being discussed at the Supreme Court at the same time was this one, Twitter versus Tomna, which I think is much more straightforward uh, and to which Bill's principles apply to me pretty obviously because it has to do with hosting um, material, not with promoting hosted material. Uh, and so um, I, I would guess that the Supreme Court is probably going to come out where Bill predicts because it's just too complicated for judicial uh, resolution. But we'll see. I would think, but I would think there's a the, the flip side of that is right now the government with the Section 230 seems to be protecting these media companies. And if you let people sue them, then you let it shake out. You don't have to re regulate anything. They'll maybe, but, re maybe regulate but, themselves. But they can't. Millions of things are posted. How can they possibly... Let, let's say... We advertise this as talking about increased violence in Ukraine. We wouldn't necessarily do that, but we could. And let's say the algorithm picked up violence, okay? <clears throat> this is happening now, by the way. They're picking up something from us and giving it to people. Uh, so we could get buried or pushed aside for just some kind of random thing in our description that we didn't necessarily have a way of detecting. Or we'd have to put 
V asterisk O L N C or something like that. It's it's, <laughs> right. it's an insane thing to get into the micromanagement of this more than they're already doing. But Ivan's point is that it's not wouldn't have to be micromanagement by bureaucrats. It could just be case cases come through for okay. But you're going to destroy you're going to destroy all the platforms. You're going to destroy their algorithmic no. promotion initiatives. Yeah, but sorry. but they right. need right. that for both the customers' interests and the advertisers. Okay, we have taken that one as and far as we can take it for today. And that includes for Independent Institute. <laughs> we want people I, I that want point. us to find us. Yeah, we do. That's true. We do. <laughs> so uh, changing the subject yet again to something slightly different, but uh, still of, of great interest to a lot of people. You know, there's the these wonderful children's books by Roald Dahl. Uh, I, we read them, some of them, to our children when they were young. Um, I didn't always like the Roald Dahl books. I thought they were a little grotesque sometimes. Right. But hey, um, you know, they're certainly classics. And the, the publisher, who apparently still holds a copyright, Puffin UK, uh, apparently decided they were going to put out new editions of these books that would sanitize them from using unpleasant words like adjectives like fat, for example. Uh, they were going to be cleansed from anything that wouldn't that might possibly offend uh, contemporary postmodern sensibilities. Uh, and boy, did this throw up a ruckus. And apparently, I just read this morning, and maybe you guys saw this, that uh, Queen Consort Camilla gave a speech recently in which she came out defending freedom of speech and the, the preservation of the integrity of published works, which led to Puffin backing down and saying that they're going to, well, we're going to publish two versions of Dahl's books once, the safe ones and the unsafe ones. And so, so the parents so can they're choose get the, the unsafe or the... <laughs> no, they're going to get the library market to, yes, to, to buy the one that, the instead of version. saying fat, says enormous. Right. Mm -hmm. Because fat and itself is so terrible that enormous right. is better. Uh there's an interesting, weird thing that hap is happening in Vermont that also has to do with authors' rights in a weird way. So a, uh, a, a an artist painted a mural about slaves and abolitionists that were helping the slaves on the Underground Railroad. And some of the students and faculty and administrators at this art school where the, the mural is don't like it because it depicts bad things that were happening to the slaves. The, the guy that painted it, of course, was quite strongly anti-slavery and mm -hmm. was celebrating Vermont's role in the Underground Railroad and so forth. So, But they don't like any depictions of things that were inflicted on the slaves. So they want them to they want to cover up or take down or rip off or paint over or cover up the, the mural. But, and this is the <clears> weird <throat> thing from a property rights standpoint, you think, well, they own the mural, right? At the school, they can cover it up. No, there's a federal law that says you can't dishonor the work of an artist by uh -huh. changing it in some way. So this uh -huh. is a little bit like editing the Raoul Dahl yeah. uh, things, except what that's just public pressure that's preventing them from doing this. And in a sense, public pressure is trying to get the school to not you know, cover, cover up the painting. Uh, anyway, it's an, it's an interesting problem. It's kind of a crazy federal law that says 
you can't disrespect <laughs> an artist's work. Yeah, but work. disrespect is a pretty ambiguous word, isn't it? I'm not sure that's a good I mean, word to use. You can't disrespect it even if you own the painting that's correct. now or whatever. That is that's the nuts. federal <laughs> statute. It was, it was a huge article yeah. about this in the New York Times. Anyway. I mean, I could see the other example with the puffin is that she's a royal, <coughs> excuse me, she's a royal official, so she's coercing the company mm -hmm. to, to put out two versions she has of no, this, right? She has, she has no, she maybe even has <laughs> minus authoritative power in the British political system. Right. She yeah. just has suasion. That's right. <laughs> official suasion. No, but she has put, put she has definitely people pay attention to her and obviously yeah. the publisher is scared of her. Right. Agreed. Well I was impressed that she would come out in favor of free speech. And you know, I don't like a lot of stuff that I read in books and I don't even like everything I read in children's books, but there's just something unhealthy it's, about this idea. It's, he, his character is fact. <clears throat> So, first of all, he personally was something of a wicked person. And uh, the, some of the characters in his books are genuinely wicked. But it's kind of like Hilaire Belloc poems about, you know, bad children and so forth. Yeah, and right. Kids get something out of it. Parents get something about it. Parents can talk to the kids about it. The kids can see wicked characters. It's kind of anti it's anti wealthy people in some of it but anyway mm -hmm. again it gives you something to talk about you don't have to accept the values of it you can even read oscar wilde's horrible socialistic fairy tales and talk to your kids about them you don't you don't have to accept them you can say look but you know look it, at the dumb argument puffin here. puffin has backed down and that's just right. as well it's but interesting. you can imagine yeah, but it's an instance of the of the impulse that we do see uh, widely. Uh, well, so I saw I saw as... somebody say, "Well, don't forget, people have put out versions of King Lear with a happy ending. People have put mm -hmm. out Goethe's <laughs> Sorrows of Young Werther uh, with a happy ending, which is really well, even more are depressing now... than King Lear." <laughs> I think those are in the public domain, so people can yeah. kind of yeah. But these these well, are still these were done... copyright. <clears throat> probably illegally back in the day, but anyway. <laughs> well, that could be, that could be. But you know, you can imagine if this kind of thing were to continue growing, that is to say the sort of cleansing and correcting of previously published works, uh, you can imagine at some future time, you know, kids are gonna have to sneak in to the secret section of the library right. and try and get Although their I hands mention, on the forbidden I'm, version. I'm kind of an expert on children's literature, and I have to tell you that the Hardy Boys and uh, Nancy Drew the, the have been um, re rewritten. Oh, really? More, uh, it's more like uh, the vocabulary was made much easier. Uh, oh, mm -hmm. that's too bad too, actually. I wouldn't say it were politically denatured, but some some of this, for example, in the Raoul Dahl, for example, there's a passage where it says somebody has all these different unattractive features, including double chins, Mm -hmm. But their goodness shined through, and by taking yeah. out double chin, they've kind of taken away the point of the whole thing mm -hmm. that the person was quite physically unattractive, and yet their goodness shined through uh, by not making him unattractive enough for the author's point. So they're really changing the story. Anyway, I, I, I think it's going to work out okay. 
Ivan, you had a comment I didn't want to miss. If you did. Oh, I don't. I don't know. I can't remember okay. what it was. That's fine. You know, I was I'm thinking... not an expert. I'm not an ex. I'm not an expert on children's literature. Okay, like Bill, is, <laughs> Bill but... is an expert on that. You know, it oh, makes yeah. me think of another parallel case. So, church-going people, you know, who go to churches that have hymnals. So, hymnals have all sorts of old texts in them. For, you know, you sing them, and I've noticed over in recent decades right. that many of the new editions of hymnals changing. they've they've gone through. You know, like there used to be uh, this great. Uh, it was a Christmas hymn, Good Christian Men Rejoice. It was about, you know, the, right. the birth of Christ. So they, it's all the new versions are Good Christian Friends Rejoice, because you can't use the word men. Right. Uh, and and it, you see it over and over again that the, the hymnal words have been changed. So new generations will never know that there was a time when they sang a hymn called Good Christian Men Rejoice. Uh, or when uh, the lyrics actually rhymed or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, too. So uh, let's talk to, about something else. Now, is this what you mentioned earlier, Bill? We, you told me that uh, there was this disinformation tracker. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's this controversy about? Can you bring us up to speed? Well, uh, so somebody took it upon themselves to perform a service that they would get contract fees for, and they would ask for foundations and governments to help them fund it. And it was to pick out uh, sites and streaming services and blogs and whatever that were filled with disinformation, okay? And then they would advise advertisers not to advertise on these things. So, uh, and they had got fairly prestigious people to be on their uh, board of directors, including a rather... A Harvard professor who specializes in this field and so forth. So uh, anyway, it turns out that I mentioned some of the people that they were targeting as saying, you know, Reason Magazine is. is, is that so so it was particularly on things having to do with COVID nineteen and uh, Russia and the supposed Russia Trump connection and things like that. So anyway, uh, so they were going to, you know, get advertisers to cancel or boycott, ostracize these uh, people, which would, you know, essentially prevent monetization of their posting. And uh, so it's come unraveled because it's sort of obviously crazy to be, you know, this is like Ben Shapiro, people that are rather mainstream conservatives and libertarians, as well as some that are a little more outre, but, you know, it's not like the Nazi party or something like that. It's people that are kind of regular conservatives or Trumpian conservatives or regular libertarians. And now it's come out. So the, the State Department Institute of Democracy has withdrawn. Harvard is pushing this woman professor off of their uh, study institute on disinformation. Uh, Microsoft has turned, was also pouring money into this, has turned off the spigot. So it's kind of coming unraveled and, and in a, a rather good way, in my opinion. It's mm -hmm. not the case always that the establishment realizes that they're being highly unfair to conservatives and libertarians in an indefensible way, but it, it was pretty indefensible.
So this is yeah. like a super version of the Southern Poverty Law Center where they are all right. always list, drawing up blacklists and you know being way over inclusive. Or sometimes the Anti-Defamation League can get a bit over inclusive. So anyway, and the most seems to me the the problem with this is that the State Department was oh, yeah. involved. That's private precisely. The private organizations from the left and the right are sniping each other. That's okay. You know, some people would call it, yeah, well, they might be, uh, you know, corralling some of the accesses of both sides, but if the, if the government the is government in there, was involved. The determining what's disinformation, that's, that would be a problem, I would yeah. think. It's certainly a problem for us as classical liberals to have that going on. And, and for, obviously, lots of other people, because that's why it's turned around. So yeah, we'll see. Clearly, it, it, clearly. I, I can't say it's gone bankrupt yet. So, <laughs> Okay, so we got the sad news this week that former President Jimmy Carter has decided to enter into hospice care, which I'm afraid naturally typically means that a person is facing the end of his life. And uh, this has led to a lot of retrospective consideration of the Jimmy Carter presidency and so forth. Obviously, those of us who were around in those days can't help but remember uh, the campaign between Reagan and Carter, and uh, the ways in which uh, Jimmy Carter seemed to embody uh, some regrettable weakness in the American posture, both internationally and in domestic matters. But you know, there's been kind of a reconsideration. You pointed out to me, Bill, that some people are looking back and pointing out to Jimmy Carter as a great deregulator, like airline yeah. tickets and interstate trucking. It, that's an interesting point. Does he deserve a little more praise as a deregulator, Bill, do you think? I think so. Uh, so he appointed uh, Alfred Kahn as the head of the Civil Aeronautics Board. He was a prominent economist, a Democrat, but somebody who understood the functioning of the market. And they rolled back uh, the controls on passenger aircraft. And they also followed through similarly with uh, freight, uh, railroad freight, and uh, they, the, the thing that's kind of charming is home brewing. So we <laughs> okay, had really? very few beer breweries in the United States at that time. Uh -huh. And so home brewing turned out, turned out to be the incubator of things like, uh, oh, Sam Adams, Sarah Nevada, lots we have now hundreds and hundreds of these breweries, some of them small, excellent craft breweries, that uh, stemmed from deregulation of home breweries. So there were other things that had to follow on to that for the brewery, uh, you know, huge, uh, I, I want to say explosion, but I don't want breweries to explode. But <laughs> we don't want them <laughs> the, to explode. The large no, increase please. in numbers of breweries. <laughs> <clears throat> and anyway, uh, I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. On the other hand, the supposed weakness of him in foreign policy, I, I think, is unfair. Uh, you know, let's go through this. I mean, there was— and when, and Ivan, listen carefully, because we want you to weigh in on this, Ivan, when yeah, after Bill I, I actually well, do want—I want to just defer us. to Ivan— to talk about okay. the foreign policy side. I think that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, Jimmy Carter. <laughs> I, I give him uh, another bad. Another bad is starting the U.S. Department of Education. Yeah. Yes, that was 
That was, I think, the worst. Yeah. But uh, but I think uh, in foreign policy, you know, he did one of the reasons that he didn't get elected was the economy. The other one was the hostage crisis. But in the hostage crisis, I mean, he was if he had got attacked them, they would have killed all the hostages and he didn't really want to do that. So eventually he got them out. But they they purposefully waited till uh, he the, the presidency passed mm-hmm. from Carter to Reagan before they released them. So. Uh, he he did um, eventually, you know, have some luck there getting him out. But of course, it ruined his presidency. And the other thing he did was he did, did the SALT II Treaty arms control. And also in the economic side, in addition to the four major industries that he deregulated, either partially or, or uh, fully, he uh, nominated Paul Volcker yes. eventually. I mean, he really, That was very he, important. He, he, had, he broke the yes, back of inflation. The, well, That's right. Yes, yeah. Well, he didn't. He started off a little rocky with G. William Miller, but he was a disaster. Right. He didn't care about inflation at all. So then he kicked him o- over to Treasury and got Paul Volcker in there. And uh, that was one of the reasons, at least, for the Reagan prosperity, I think. Yes, and of course, the 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 recession side of it happened to the en- very end of Carter and the beginning of Reagan. So it looked kind of ugly and it helped Reagan get in. Uh, I, I would also say something, though. I think, Ivan, you should say something about the Pershing missiles and the reviving of spending and the Zbigniew uh, Brzezinski and the, yeah, the that was crescent the other, of crisis that was the other, and uh, actually Afghanistan did a bad thing with the Carter, sort of Carter stuff, Doctrine. So, yeah. The yeah, Carter yeah, Doctrine for the Middle Carter East. Doctrine. So it says the Carter Doctrine was that we would defend oil. In the Middle East, Persian Gulf, this, especially. I, yeah, yeah, the Persian Gulf. And uh, I wrote a book, No War for Oil, for the Institute, where I say that you know you don't really need to do that because the oil there's a worldwide market, and you know if you take oil off the market, the price goes up. If you take put oil on the market, the price goes down. And if there's a war, a lot of times during the Iraq Iran War. Uh, which was the biggest threat to the oil in the Persian Gulf because both parties were Persian Gulf countries. They they um, they stayed away uh, from closing the Strait of Hormuz, which is a key oil transport route. They tried to hit each other's um, oil derricks and that sort of thing. And the U.S. Uh, tried to reflag tankers uh, in the early '80s. Or excuse me, yeah, early '80s. And, but but the there was uh, they even traded oil through the through the war, and so it really kind of proved that uh, oil flows um, and and the producers that are not involved in the war they increase uh, production because the prices increase and then the price goes back down right and so uh, this idea that we needed to defend the oil by the Carter Doctrine. Uh, really skewed U.S. foreign policy. Unfortunately, Reagan picked that up and went big with it yeah. because uh, Carter had created this rapid deployment force, um, and then, uh, it, but there really wasn't anything to it. They had the doctrine, and it's kind of like the Monroe Doctrine when it, when it started out. There really wasn't much to it. And then Reagan came along and created the Central Command and all that kind of stuff, and away we went with all the Iraq wars and that kind of thing. Well, so looking back, I mean, there are things that we can certainly regret about the Carter years, Department of Education, the Carter Doctrine. But there are other things that were 
worth giving him more credit than I realized at the time. Regardless, I'm sure we all wish the best for him and Rosalind uh, during this season of his life. And with that, I, I, I think also, we're ready to I say goodbye. Also, I'll just give one, as I say goodbye, I'll just also thank him for his work with Habitat for Humanity. Yeah, for sure, right. So yeah, I think he was a better president than most people give him credit for. Right, that's what I'm realizing. Overall. Yeah. Okay, that said, um, we are grateful for our friends who are joining us for this conversation. I'm especially grateful to Ivan Elon for joining up with his international expertise and Bill for his all-around wisdom. Even where I disagree with you, Bill, you're pretty Thank darn you. wise. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, friends. Um, we'll see you next time on Independent Outlook. Take care, everybody.